0: This episode of the Coin Week podcast is brought to you by PCGS. As the year wraps up, be sure to take advantage of the PCGS quarterly grading special, where you get free secure service when you select the TrueView option with your orders. Visit www.pcgs.com to learn more. This week on the Coin Week podcast, we get into the weeds about numismatic research and how today's numismatists are undoing years of faulty understandings Of some of America's most important coins. David McCarthy is our guest today. Earlier this year, David stunned the hobby after he revealed that his research points to a fascinating untold origin story of the Type II Nova Constellatio quint, a coin that his firm Kagan's paid over a million dollars for at auction. Does this pattern represent America's first attempt at a national coin? David has the answers and more next. On the Clean Week Podcast. Hi, David. Thanks for joining me on the Clean Week Podcast. Thanks
1: for having me. How are you doing today?
0: Well, I'm doing great. It seems to me that you've uh, been on a media whirlwind since you announced the findings of your research into the Nova Constellatio Type 2 Quint that you and Kagan's picked up at the 2013 Central States auction. I've
1: been on a numismatic rampage. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's been an interesting experience.
0: So before we get into the nitty-gritty details about this coin and what you learned about it, I'd like you to give our listeners a bullet point synopsis on the 1783 dated Nova Constellatio Type Two Quint a coin that is featured in the contract issues and pattern section of the Red Book.
1: Well, the easiest way to express it is that the Nova Constellatio coins in general are the very first coins that were struck under the authority of the United States government. Um, they were they were made in 1783 and and a single silver coin was struck and delivered to Robert Morris. It was examined by Morris and Alexander Hamilton. They corresponded about it, and then Morris made the decision to strike a set of these coins to present to Congress. That set went to Congress and then was examined by Thomas Jefferson, and while that set was in Jefferson's uh, possession, Jefferson actually sat down and wrote out, uh, based upon his impression of the set, what ultimately became the monetary system of the United States of America. So essentially you have a single object that leads to a set of objects that leads to the monetary system that we know today.
0: Now before your research, the impression of this Type two quint was different with numismatists. Usually, when people think of coins by type, type 1 precedes type 2 chronologically. But you have found that that is not the case with this coin.
1: Yeah, and in fact, you know, you, you've, you've sort of hit upon the, the, the crux of the biscuit with this thing. Um, what happened is that a couple of the coins from the set that went to Congress uh, were retained by Charles Thompson, who was the Secretary of Congress, uh, pretty much through the entire Confederation era. And those coins were discovered by a descendant of his sometime in the 1840s, and they were the first of the Nova Constellatio coins to be known. And sometime right around 1870, the this coin, the it's now called the plain obverse quint. The Red Book's been changed to reflect the fact that it wasn't made second. But... Um when it was found in 1870, because it was a different type from the one that had been found in Charles Thompson's desk, uh, they, they sort of arbitrarily called it the, the second type or type two, just because it was the second one that they had seen. And words are really powerful things. And so what you sort of see going on with the Nova Constellatios is for 137 years, everyone who wrote about these things and looked at this piece automatically assumed it had to have been made after the set. And it's it's fascinating to realize this when you look at all of the evidence. And there's a phenomenal amount of documentary evidence about these pieces. And the story's really clear. One coin's delivered, a set's delivered, and then the dies are returned no other coins are struck so the fact that this thing was called the type 2 and everyone assumed it had to have been made after the set actually flew in the face of everything we knew about the uh you know the actual historical context that these things were made in well you know and i mean one of the one of the first things that clued me in that this might actually be the coin that Robert Morris uh, referred to as the first that has been struck as an American coin was the fact that it didn't have the legend. Um, You know, my experience is when you have a no motto and a with motto, the no motto comes first, like with a 20, and the with motto comes second. And, you you know, you can say that about 20 libs, you can say that about 20 saints, you can say that about all of our silver coins that, you know, when God we trust was added to. The tendency with... um, you know, with the designers of coins is to, you know, design something that's as visually simple as possible and then people come along and say, oh no, but you gotta add this. And so when I when I first started researching the coin, the very first thing I kind of honed in on was the fact that, well, you know, my experience with coins has led me to understand that, that we tend to add words and phrases into the design of a coin, we don't take them away.
0: So let's go back in time and talk about how you and Don Kagan acquired the coin. It was an expensive coin to acquire, and I'm sure that you and Don felt that in your wallets. But describe for me the decision making process and how the two of you went about taking a shot at this coin. How far into your research were you before the auction, and how long was it before the auction that you decided to pull the trigger and buy it? Also, how sure were you that your hypothesis would turn out to be correct?
1: Well, you know, so I had always been fascinated with the Nova Constellatio's, I, you know, I knew a fair amount about their history, uh, you know, in in retrospect I knew a fraction of a fraction of the information that was out there, but you know, I was aware that they were struck 9 years before the 1792 dated U.S. coins, and I was uh, I was aware of the fact that, you know, they were the brainchild of Robert Morris and yada, yada, yada. So I, I had a lot of interest in the pieces, and then in uh, 2013, Heritage advertised the fact that they were going to be selling the, you know, what was at that time known as the Type II Quint. And I can remember getting the auction catalog for the central states auction, and and seeing the coin on the cover and thinking uh, something doesn't fit, you know, and one of one of the lessons that I've learned again and again and again in my career is when I look at a coin and I have the sense of something being off or something not fitting or you know whatever whatever spider sense uh Kind of, you know, you just, you just, something strikes you about a particular coin. I always listen to that now, um, because in my experience, that's sort of my brain telling me that there's something different about this, or there's something that doesn't, there's something special about the item, and and I've learned to listen to that because I've done very well listening to those sorts of uh, impressions. And so I sat down and I talked with Don, and you know we sort of had a discussion that went, well, no one really knows what this thing is. It's going to be an awful lot of money. It's probably going to be over a million dollars, and who pays over a million dollars for a what's it? Um, and you know that's that's pretty solid logic. <laughs> you know, who 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 in their right mind is going to bet seven figures on something that? doesn't really fit the historical data the way we understand it, and you know I did a little bit of reading on it. I kind of boned up on on the history around the thing and and it just it really stuck with me i couldn't not think about it and The day of the sale, Don took me aside and said, You know I've been thinking about this I think you you need to take a really good look at the quint.' And we need to talk about it because you know it's coming up today, and this could be an opportunity. So, I actually left the, the, the floor at the Central States show. I went up to my uh, to my hotel room and turned on the air conditioner as high as I could. It was like, uh, for whatever reason that year, the the uh, the Boris floor was like 85 degrees. It was brutal.
0: Yes, it was balmy in Schaumburg that day.
1: Yeah, it was it was it was it was really strange because usually like Wednesday is like that, you know they don't have the air conditioning turned on on Wednesdays for setup, but for some reason on Thursday it was pretty bad, and uh, you know I went up to my room, I flopped down on my hotel bed, I I got out, you know I had a file that I'd been building on these things, and I started looking at the coin, I started looking at the other coins, I started reading. You know, I'd I'd taken and I'd laid out the historical data as best I could in order. And, you know, I saw that that sentence sent for Mr. Dudley, who delivered to me a piece of silver coin being the first that has been struck as an American coin. And I saw that and I sort of thought, well, what if this is that coin? And I sat down and I sort of like sketched out Physically, what would have happened if this was that coin, and and it, suddenly everything fit. You know, prior to thinking that this could be uh, something that was made first, the whole problem was that you had this set of coins. We knew at least some of the coins that were in the set, and then there's this other coin that is unrelated to the set that doesn't fit the history. You know, where did this come from? When did they strike it? There's no mention of a coin being struck after the set. But if you put it before the set, suddenly the whole thing falls into place. And I thought that that was really interesting, and I thought it was very convincing, particularly because of the issue with uh, the fact that this coin didn't say Nova Constellatio on the front. But I sort of felt like, well, that's that just kind of amounts to a hunch. Is there some other piece of data... You know, I mean, if I'm going to sit down and and, and, and bet a million dollars worth of Kagan's money on anything, you know, I like to be the house. I don't like to be the gambler. <laughs> I started uh, really looking at the pictures of the coins, particularly the two, the two quints. And I was sitting there, and what I noticed and what absolutely convinced me that the the hypothesis I was playing with was correct, was I noticed that the borders on the two coins on the front were different. So if you, if you sit down and you look at the plain obverse quint, um, there's a beaded border on both sides of it. And the beads are clearly laid down with the same tool. They're the same size, same orientation. They kind of come a little bit paired. Uh, the shape is sort of vaguely, you know, round to egg shaped. And then when you look at the uh the Nova Constellatio quint that was in the set, the beads on the front don't match the beads on the back. The beads on the back, being that it's the same die that was used on, on both coins are are the same on both coins, although they're much smaller on the on the Nova Constellatio quint. But on the front of the one from the set the beads are, you know, one and a half, two times the size of the beads on the other one, and they're square. You know, I mean, they're kind of rounded squares. And what I realized was that, you know, if you if you're making dies, your tendency is going to be if you're making two dies at the same time, you're going to use the same tools to, uh, you know, to make the various features on those dies. And so here we have a coin that's struck from a pair of dies that doesn't have a legend and the beaded borders match perfectly. And then we have this other die where there's a legend on the front and in addition to that the beaded borders are clearly made with two different tools. And that told me what I really needed to know to feel comfortable bidding on the piece. It told me that, you know, the dies on the coin that was used in the set were were actually made at two different times possibly by two different people. And so when I went into the auction room with Don, I was very confident that my hypothesis was correct. I wasn't sure that I could prove it. Um, You know, being right and being able to demonstrate why you're right are two very different things in this world.
0: So let's get to the actual auction itself. A lot comes up. Obviously, the two of you had talked, and there was a number, an upper limit of uh, sanity, if you will. How confident were you and Don about the uh, possibility of landing this coin? And uh, how did you feel as that number continued to climb upwards?
1: Um, to be perfectly honest, this is the only time in my career where I didn't have an upper limit. We walked into the room and Don said, Well, you know, what do you what do you want to pay? I said, I don't care what I pay, we have to buy this coin. Um and he agreed with me. Uh I one thing I will say, uh, where this whole situation is concerned, um, I can't imagine having having better support <laughs> than than I've had uh working with Don on this thing it's uh i mean th- sit back and think for a minute about having someone who is willing to bet that kind of money on on an idea that you have and someone who who has that kind of faith and is willing to give you the support. Not only to buy the item, but to spend four years researching it to get the story straight and to to actually um, have a worthwhile uh, narrative to present the world. It's kind of kind of remarkable, and you know, kind of speaks to the sort of vision that he has for uh, numismatics.
0: So let's dig into the process of uh, conducting the research into the coin and. And how long into that process uh, was it before you exhibited the confidence you now have about your findings?
1: My, my first attempts were entirely in terms of historical research. Um, I sort of started in a place where I was I was aware that there was a tremendous amount of information that had been recorded about these coins, which is really you know if if you're a student of numismatics and you 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 study the 18th century, one of the things you discover is there are an awful lot of things where there's not really a lot of very good information. And the beauty of the Nova Constellatio pieces and Robert Morris's patterns is that Robert Morris actually kept very good records of what was going on. Um, Continental Congress and the Treasury kept very good records of what was going on in terms of payments to people and what those payments were being made for. And then you also had individuals like Charles Thompson and uh, Thomas Jefferson who uh, uh, you know, wrote down information about this project that that could then be used to help analyze all of the data. And so the first thing I I did was I sat down, and this was even before I bought the coin, I sat down and I found as much information in my numismatic library as I could, and I made lists of various statements, and I determined which ones were factual and actually had a basis in the historical record and which ones were just conjectural. And all of the conjecture I just threw out. I said, you know, I'm not going to look at anything anyone has to say about this object unless they had, you know, material knowledge of what was going on. And so I sat down with all the primary source material that had been recorded, you know, by people like Crosby, um, et cetera, et cetera. And I came up with a list, and I organized the list chronologically so that I could get a sense of what was actually going on on the ground when these things were being struck. And it was surprising how how clarifying just doing that was, you know, because there's there's a very um, there's a very easy to understand story. And then the next step for me was looking at um, you know numismatic information in the ANA's library. I went there and I got everything I could find on the Nova Constellatio's and the people involved in them. And I discovered uh, a treasure trove of information, most of it in the C4 newsletter, uh, that kind of gave me background on what had been published elsewhere. So, you know, I, I was able to uh, discover information going back to 1781, um, explaining, you know, where Benjamin Dudley came from. Who, You know, Benjamin Dudley is the guy who actually... Built the mint that struck these coins, Um, and you know it turns out that you know Benjamin Dudley was in Boston, and uh, an agent of Continental Congress discovered him in Boston and reported this this Dudley guy who was a a metallurgist and a mechanic, uh, not to Robert Morris, but actually to Samuel Huntington, who was the president of Continental Congress and from Huntington, the information then went to Morris, and Morris is the person who actually went about getting him to come down to Philadelphia and work for the United States government. But, you know, the context suddenly that was there was this wasn't just some sort of pet project of Robert Morris. This is something where there were many people who were directly involved in Continental Congress and in running this country who were involved in getting this project project off the ground um and you know one of the things that was at least implied in a lot of the things that were written about these coins in the 20th century was that this was somehow um you know sort of a personal project of Robert Morris's and it wasn't really supported and the truth is that all of the historical data flies in the face of that it's very very clear that this is something that um everyone from the president of Continental Congress to, you know, members of Continental Congress like Alexander Hamilton, uh, had a stake in and was interested in seeing uh, the idea of a mint get off the ground as early as 1782.
0: So why do you think it was that the mint didn't get off the ground at that time?
1: Um, Well, you know, the problem with the U.S. government under the Confederation was that the Federal Government didn't have the kinds of powers that it has today, and you know this is another thing that's sort of become apparent to me when i when I read a lot of the things that are published by historians and numismatists about this era. there's this fundamental misunderstanding i think of the way that the government worked. It was sort of experimental under the confederation, but it also um, it wasn't structured the way that that we're used to you you didn't have a president in the sense that we have a president, you know a supreme executive, and a couple of houses of Congress and a judiciary figuring out how to do things they were they were making it up as they went along. The president was a president of Congress and was primarily um, uh, almost i wouldn't say a figurehead but you know he was he was involved more in um issues of decorum than in making major decisions and interestingly enough Robert Morris uh, Robert Morris was the first elected elected executive uh, after after the uh, well it was actually during the Revolutionary War and was largely seen by most people from what I've been able to ascertain as sort of the most Powerful man in the United States, and certainly one of the de facto leaders of the country at the time. And so, what was going on was we had a weak federal government that didn't have the power to tax, and that federal government was dealing with the fact that there were tremendous debts associated with the prosecution of the Revolutionary War and the states who were supposed to be basically funding this federal government had no interest in in sending any money to the federal government they had their own uh their own issues to deal with and so the history of of the confederation particularly in 1782 and 1783 is one of uh, extreme privation for the for the federal government, they just did not have enough money to do much of anything, um, and the consequence of that is a, a project like establishing a mint, which would be uh, a fairly expensive project, would have to be backburned. And we see that you know they 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 actually don't manage to to establish a mint until 1792, and you know the first. The first attempt at coinage after uh, the Nova Constellation audio patterns in any real way is, is the Congress actually farming out the job of making the coins. And you have, you know, a variety of people bidding for a contract to make the Fujio sense in 1787.
0: Well, you know, we, we even see that when Congress passes the Coinage Act of 1792, which uh you know leads to the establishment of the Philadelphia mint that uh some in congress were reluctant to continue to fund that operation and see it through to success.
1: Well, I mean, this is you got to understand in in the late 18th century this is totally uncharted waters for them. You know, it's it's hard to imagine this, but in the 18th century if you lived in North America, you used whatever you could get your hands on as far as money. And that, you know, I mean, that meant sometimes British crowns and guineas and pence and shillings, or maybe that meant Portuguese and Portuguese colonial coins or Spanish and Spanish colonial coins or corn or bullets or nails or wampum uh, or paper money. You know, I mean, it was sort of catch-as-catch-can financially. And people had sort of gotten used to a situation where we were sort of using, you know, whatever sort of drifted into our economy. And so the idea of having a mint and spending the money to have some sort of uh, single currency to be used throughout the United States wasn't a foregone conclusion, particularly because – each of the 12 or each of the 13 original colonies actually had its own monetary system and they didn't necessarily line up which of course is part of the problem that leads to to Morris's brilliant solution which unfortunately doesn't get adopted in 1783 but you know i mean if you had money from new york and money from south carolina they didn't line up And so the idea of having one coin that was used by everyone in all 13 of these colonies wasn't necessarily a super compelling idea to everyone at that point. Um, You know, the, the idea of the United States, the way we think of it, wasn't really the way people thought of it in the Confederation era. They more thought of themselves almost like a Eurozone, I think. I think that would be the best analogy, and I I don't think that it's an ideal analogy because, of course, I think the bonds were a bit stronger because of uh, the Revolutionary War, and I think that that brought people together. But conceptually, the United States of America almost saw themselves as united sovereign nations that, you know, were going to have sort of this loose confederation, and so you. You're dealing with a situation that isn't necessarily conducive for getting anything done, and of course that leads to you know the the adoption of the Constitution, which changes everything.
0: I'm pretty sure that you're right. you know the people of Virginia or South Carolina or wherever you know they wanted their independence from from uh England uh, they weren't necessarily looking to give up that newfound independence to other states and the colonies
1: a lot of the a lot of the southern states were primarily agrarian economies and honestly they didn't want to get bulldozed by you know New York and Massachusetts which were primarily uh urban and so and you know you sort of have the seeds for the civil war being planted back during the confederation era for those very reasons so you know history is a complicated thing and our tendency to project our current uh, experience onto these situations that are very different from what we know makes it very, very easy to misunderstand some of the things that uh, that, that went on in the 1780s.
0: What do you think ultimately did end the Constelladio project?
1: The simplest explanation of Morris's plan is it was a bottom-up plan, which is to say. His unit was based upon the highest common divisor that was being used by all the various pieces of money that you would encounter in North America, which is to say he had determined with with Gouverneur Morris that a quarter grain of silver, which is a minuscule 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 amount of silver uh, was the largest common divisor between you know Spanish silver dollars and Portuguese 6,400 rays and New York State paper money, et cetera, et cetera. So, if you had um, if you had specie in the form of foreign coins, uh, under Morris's plan, you could bring it into the mint, and it would be very easily exchanged for an even amount of coins under Morris's system. And Jefferson failed to grasp the elegance of that solution. Jefferson looked at that and said, well, you know, people on the street are used to using the dollar, so why don't we make the dollar the unit? And forget about this minuscule quarter grain of silver. I mean, you know, if you want to buy a cow and you have this unit, I mean, a cow would be 18,700 units. That's, 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 That's a crazy amount of money, whereas, you know, it might be eight silver dollars. Or you know whatever whatever the the numbers were and I'm I'm probably getting the numbers wrong that's actually an example that, that, that Jefferson uses in saying that you know we need to use a, a larger unit as the basic unit the problem with Jefferson's plan is that you adopt the dollar and the dollar doesn't evenly divide into any of these various things that are floating around so they adopt the dollar they establish the mint. And we end up using foreign currency, foreign foreign specie in this country legally until 1857. If we'd adopted the Morris system, the vast majority of silver and gold coins from other countries that floated around in this country—I mean, they were using—they were using Spanish silver in California into the 1860s. Um, that stuff would have been brought into the mint, recoin,ed and we would have had a fairly substantial supply of US coins from the get-go. And instead we have this system that, you know, it takes a while to take off. However, what Jefferson clearly understood and and caught on to was this idea of a decimal coinage. And he and Alexander Hamilton, who were both exposed early on to to these coins and to this plan, immediately were converts to this idea of having a uh, a decimal coinage. And when the uh, when the Nova Constellatio set was sent to Thomas Jefferson, he actually was in the process of writing his notes on the establishment of a money unit and coinage for the United States. And if you sit down and read that, the basic conclusion ends up And I'm going to read this because I managed to – I Googled it really fast while I was talking to you. Um, The financier, therefore, in his report, well proposes that our coins should be in decimal proportions to one another. If we adopt the dollar for our unit, we should strike four coins, one of gold, two of silver, one of copper. For instance, one, a golden piece equal in value to $10. Two, a unit or dollar itself of silver. Three, the tenth of a dollar of silver also for the hundredth of a dollar of copper. What you just heard was the very first description of the U.S. monetary system as it stands. And that was written essentially with the Nova Constellatio coin sitting on his desk. It gives you an idea of the historical importance of these pieces. You know, no Nova Constellatio coins, no dollar as we know it. Things would be wildly different.
0: So what's next for you in this coin?
1: Um, that remains to be seen. I've got a few things cooking right now, and uh, you know, I think that the the next year is going to be very interesting for me, and I think it's going to be very interesting for the United States uh, in terms of numismatics.
0: <laughs> well, I'm pretty sure it's going to be an interesting time for the United States in general.
1: the 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 old Chinese curse: May you live in interesting times. <laughs> <laughs> um
0: well interesting times always make for the best coins
1: yeah i agree um well you know i mean right now i'm i'm continuing the research on this coin um i'm i'm enjoying a lot of interest in these coins from outside of the numismatic world right now i think you know one of the one of the things that you discover When you're when you're dealing with something along these lines, that's sort of a a paradigm shift. Is that people who aren't experts tend to see the the importance of something like this much faster than people who know the whole game? You know, we have like these ideas that we uh, that we hold dear, and when you when you look at something like this, this is sort of changing the story, right? Um so i mean i've I've had some very interesting phone calls from people outside of the of the world of coins. Uh, I'm continuing to do research on this. I've been working on some research on some other early Americana uh, with uh, with a few people that probably will result in a major announcement in the next six months that will straight up change. The way we see early u s numismatics, I think um, and unfortunately, I can't be much more specific than that right now but uh i I'm really excited I don't think you know i've I've always been fully engaged in my numismatic research and fully engaged with what I'm doing you know as a as a coin dealer and as a coin collector but um, in the 20 years that I've been doing, well, 17 years that I've been doing this professionally, I've never been as um, completely enthralled with uh, with what it is that I'm that I'm learning on a daily basis. I mean, it's it's ridiculous. I work all day, and I go home, and more often than not, I find myself Doing research and doing writing uh when I probably ought to be doing other things because uh, i'm just I'm sort of discovering that a lot of the stories that we've been telling about early American numismatics are just that they're stories, and the assumption I think that people made that there wasn't a lot of good information out there is being proven wrong by technology uh you know we live at a time where you know, 50 years ago, if you wanted to to do serious research, you had to go to a library, and sometimes a very particular library, and you had to know how to access information that other people didn't know how to access, and it was time consuming, time consuming, and expensive, and difficult. And so, the level of uh, engagement required of a serious researcher was was pretty tremendous. I mean, I can tell you right now, I can sit on my computer today and access information uh whether it's through Google Books or the numism- numismatic portal or any of a number of other online features that you know, this information is game changing. This information is telling us things that uh you know, should have been in the record a long time ago, but you know, and just it wasn't because it was so difficult to access. Um and I really see what's going on right now. I, I suspect that we're probably entering sort of a new golden age of numismatic research because of a combination of the availability of information, but also there's a certain amount there's a certain aspect of crowdsourcing now that's going on. You know, you look at some of the numismatic message boards and some of the things that are discussed there. And you can have great researchers talking about something, and some guy nobody knows comes up and has, like, a brilliant piece of information that nobody else is aware of. So I think, you know, we're really lucky to be alive today, as numismatists. I think, as human beings, even with the interesting stuff that's going on in this country. Um, We're really fortunate to be alive today because we have access to information on a level that was unimaginable 20 years ago.
0: Well, David, I always enjoy talking coins with you. Uh, You know, Obviously, you know your stuff. You put the work in. uh, But I hope you're able to make some downtime for yourself and get some noodling time in with your collection of classic guitars. Uh, It is important for a man to have a hobby.
1: I have not been playing enough guitar lately. I I got a text from my guitar teacher today, and I haven't talked to him in like two weeks. So I'm, I'm feeling guilty, but... You know, I mean, I I don't know. I I enjoy my life. I like what I do. And, uh, you know, if that means not playing guitar for a month while I'm geeking out on coins, maybe I'm doing something right.
0: (laughs) You you know, it's those those augmented chords are always the first to go. (laughs) (laughs) All right, my friend, thanks for taking the time and talking with us about this. What a cool story.
1: Thank you. Have a great day, and you know, thanks for thanks for calling.
0: Sure, take care. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share with your friends. Remember, you can download all eighty-four episodes of the Coin Week podcast for free from the iTunes Store, or stream them online on CoinWeek.com. For Coin Week, I'm editor Charles Morgan. Until next time, happy collecting.